If you're enjoying History Extra Long Reads, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thank you for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to History Extra Long Reads, where we take a deep dive into the past, bringing you the very best of BBC History magazine with fascinating articles from leading historical experts. What can brutal murders reveal about society at the time they were committed? And what additional insights can we gain when those killings were committed by women? In today's long read, Rosalind Crone, historical consultant on the BBC series Lady Killers with Lucy Worsley, reveals what six murder cases can tell us about women's lives in the 19th century. Today's feature originally appeared in the January 2024 issue of BBC History magazine and has been voiced in partnership with the Royal National Institute of Blind People. 1. Swiss maid Maria Manning was convicted for the killing of a former lover, but might she have been the victim of gender stereotyping? It was a stain between two flagstones that gave the game away. On the 17th of August, 1849, two policemen were conducting a search for a missing customs officer named Patrick O'Connor. For days, they had been collecting information about O'Connor's last known movements, and this had led them to a house in Bermondsey, London. At first, the officers found nothing. In fact, they were about to leave the house when Constable Barnes noticed the damp mark. The stain suggested that the flagstones in the kitchen had recently been relayed, and so the policemen started digging. When they got 18 inches down, Barnes discovered the loins of a man. It was lying on the belly and the legs were brought back and tied up round the haunches with a strong cord. It was quite naked. Dental records confirmed the body was Patrick O'Connor. On the 9th of August, O'Connor had been invited to dine with the occupants of three men of a place, Frederick Manning and his Swiss wife Maria. O'Connor had met Maria when she was a lady's maid for the Duchess of Sutherland's daughter. They began a relationship, but when he was slow to propose, Maria married Frederick, a guard on the Western Railway. Tough times had brought Maria and Frederick to London, and Maria had rekindled her affair with the well-off O'Connor. But on the 17th of August, Maria and Frederick Manning were nowhere to be seen. The police launched a massive manhunt. Maria was captured in Edinburgh, trying to sell railway shares belonging to O'Connor. Frederick, who had made it to Jersey, was recognised by an old acquaintance. Both were brought back to London to stand trial. They appeared in the dock at the Old Bailey on the 25th and 26th of October 1849, each intent on blaming the other. Maria's barrister claimed that Frederick killed O'Connor in a jealous rage. Speaking for Frederick, Sergeant Wilkins deployed prominent gender stereotypes. He argued that while history showed that women could display higher levels of virtue than men, once she gives way to vice, she sinks far lower than our sex. My hypothesis is that the female prisoner premeditated, planned and concocted the murder, and that she made her husband her dupe for that purpose. The jury condemned them both. Maria raged against the verdict. I am a foreigner, and I have been denied justice. I have not been treated like a Christian, but like a wild beast of the forest. But to no avail, she and her husband were hanged, side by side, on the roof of Horsemonger Lane Jail on the 13th of November, 1849, before a crowd of perhaps 50,000 spectators, among them Charles Dickens. 2. 
Fear of the stigma of an illegitimate child led Jane Boyd to commit a horrific crime. Historians have suggested that infanticide might have been a weekly event in mid-19th century Ireland. In many of these cases, it was a means of dealing with illegitimacy at a time when fatherless babies were stigmatised and brought great financial hardship to mothers. And so on the 26th of October 1861, when Anne Boyd, an unmarried teenager from Ballykeel, who had recently returned home from a spell as a domestic servant, went into labour, her mother Jane panicked. Living in a small cottage in a tightly knit community, it was difficult to hide what was happening. Anne's brother James, who had just come home for his dinner, noticed the commotion. I sat in the kitchen and heard my sister screaming, he later testified. Then after my sister screamed, I heard the sound of a child. It did not cry very long. It gave three cries. Around one o'clock, neighbours James and Mary Hill saw Jane digging a hole. It's a strange time to be digging in a garden, Mary remarked to Jane. Other neighbours and extended family who called on the Boyds that afternoon noticed that Anne was very ill and told Jane to call a doctor. Dr Dunlop, the parish medical officer, came the next day. After examining Anne and finding that she had recently given birth, he sent for Constable Waters of the Holywood Barracks. Confronted by the two men, Jane, who had insisted that her daughter had suffered a miscarriage, cracked. There was a child, she confessed, and it was buried in the garden. The child was dead, born dead. At the foot of an elm tree, Waters and Dunlop recovered the body of a baby girl in a shallow grave hidden underneath some large cabbages. Following an inquest, Jane was charged with murder and was sent with Anne to Downpatrick Jail to await trial. At the eleventh hour, a deal was struck. Jane and Anne pleaded guilty to concealment of birth, and the prosecution dropped the charge of murder. Anne was sentenced to six months' imprisonment with hard labour. The judge was entirely convinced that Jane had killed the baby and so gave her the maximum penalty, two years' imprisonment with hard labour. 3. Marie Christensen's brutal treatment of a child of Aboriginal descent exposed the iniquities of Australia's policies towards Indigenous people. In 1896, a girl called Cassie was sent to the reformatory school at Maora Mission in Moreton Bay, Queensland. Cassie, who was described as being about five years old and half-caste, was a weak child, suffering ill health as well as, in the words of the mission superintendent, being dull and not in as good spirits as the others. She was far from the only child to make such a journey. In late 19th century Australia, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were forced to live on reserves and missions where they were segregated from white settler communities. Policies of assimilation enabled the authorities to remove children of Aboriginal descent from their parents and send them to reformatory schools where they were trained to enter white society as domestic servants and farm labourers. All this was done under the guise of protection, but for Cassie, protection was in short supply. On the 14th of September, the mission matron, Marie Christensen, took Cassie to the tidal springs at the bottom of the hill to bathe. When the child refused, Christensen forced her into the water. Boudlo Lefou, a First Nations woman who lived on the mission, watched the matron ducking the child up and down in the sea. When the matron dragged the child back up the hill, beating her with a stick and kicking her, Budlow came to stop her, and she told me I had nothing to do with it, so I went away. Christensen hurried Cassie into the dormitory where she continued the beating. Five days later, Cassie died. 
The refusal of the attending doctor to issue a medical certificate triggered an inquest, at that time a rare event on the death of an indigenous person. In another unusual twist, the local justice of the peace, William North, collected testimony from indigenous women who lived on the mission, committing their voices to the historical record. Christensen was charged with manslaughter. In return for a guilty plea, the prosecution spoke on her behalf, claiming she was of imperfect brain development. She received a suspended sentence, and the Miura mission, indeed the whole system, escaped serious scrutiny. The reformatory school was quickly shut down, and Cassie's peers were moved on. The Miura mission continued until 1942. 4. Alice Mitchell's vicious attack on a childhood sweetheart challenged contemporary attitudes towards female same-sex relationships. In the eyes of most residents of 19th-century Tennessee, female same-sex love was abnormal, though some young unmarried women had close, even openly affectionate friendships with female peers. Hardly anyone thought for a second that there would be any kind of sexual element to these relationships. Such assumptions were dramatically challenged in early 1892 by two teenage girls, Alice Mitchell and Frieda Ward. Alice and Frieda had become close friends after meeting at Higby School for Young Ladies in Memphis. In 1891, when Frieda moved to the town of Gold Dust on the Mississippi River to live with her older sister and widowed father, Alice and Frieda were able to sustain their relationship through visits and letters. When they stayed together, they shared a bed, as expected. When apart, the girls declared their love for each other in writing. Alice even bought Frieda an engagement ring and proposed marriage, declaring that she would live as a man, Alvin J. Ward, to make their union possible. Frieda, however, was keeping her options open. In gold dust, she began to entertain male suitors, in particular a man called Ashley Rosell. Alice was enraged. I love you, Fred, and would kill Ashley before I would see him take you from me, she warned in one letter. In August 1891, the girls devised a plan to elope, but it was discovered by Frieda's sister, who became determined to end the relationship. Frieda returned Alice's engagement ring. Alice, however, could not accept that the relationship was over. When, in January 1892, Frieda visited Memphis to stay with a friend, Alice tried writing to her once more, but her letters were returned unopened, and when they met in the street, Frieda refused to acknowledge her. To explain her actions, Frieda wrote Alice one final letter. I love you now and always will, but I have been forbidden to speak to you and I have to obey. Just days later, Alice stabbed Frieda to death as she tried to board the steamer back to gold dust. In her confession, Alice explained that she resolved to kill Frieda because I loved her so much that I wanted her to die loving me. A verdict of insanity ensured that Alice avoided the gallows and society could continue to define female same-sex relationships as an aberration. 5. In 1841, Mary Ann Bruff secured the illustrious position of wet nurse to the Prince of Wales, but a marital dispute sent her life spiralling out of control. In 1834, George Bruff, a groundsman at Claremont House, a royal residence in Esher, married one of the domestic servants, Mary Ann. In 1841, shortly after the birth of her fourth child, Mary Ann secured the illustrious position of wet nurse to the Queen's first son, Bertie, later Edward VII. Victoria herself remembered Mary Ann from visits to Claremont. Just months later, though, Mary Ann was dismissed allegedly for drunkenness. In 
At home in Isha, she went on to have yet more children, ten in total, though only seven survived infancy. There were difficulties in her marriage with George, too. By the early 1850s, George had become a house servant at Claremont, often staying on site. His wife began an affair. Suspecting as much, in the summer of 1854, George hired a private detective who reported that Mary Ann had spent time with a man from Esher in a questionable house in London. Angry and upset, on the 6th of June, George left the family home. The next day, when he returned to collect his nightcap, he declared, I intend to see a solicitor to start legal proceedings and to get full custody of the children. In mid-19th century England, a mother found guilty of wrongdoing such as adultery could lose all contact with her children. Mary Ann now faced the real prospect of being separated from them. Two days later, on the evening of the 9th of June, Mary Ann slit the throats of the six children who lived with her, aged between 21 months and 12 years, before attempting to kill herself. She made a full confession to the police, claiming that a black cloud had come over her. But to the woman who was nursing her, she said, He left me with no money and was going to take the children away from me. I was not going to allow him to do so. At Mary Ann's trial on the 9th of August, the jury accepted her plea of insanity. Neighbours and her doctor testified that she was a loving mother who had suffered ill health, pain in the head, bleeding from her nose and a suspected stroke following the birth of her youngest child. The eminent psychiatrist, Forbes B. Winslow, recognised her account of the black cloud, explaining that mothers could experience bouts of temporary insanity when under significant stress. Insanity also provided contemporaries with a way to explain the unexplainable, a mother who killed her six children. Mary Ann was sent to Bethlehem Asylum, where she died on the 18th of March, 1861, from paralysis and apoplexy. 6. Mary Surratt's warning that something is going to happen to Abraham Lincoln helped secure her an unwanted place in history. When we think of the murder of Abraham Lincoln, we tend to remember his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, who fired the deadly shot at Ford's Theatre in Washington, D.C. on the 14th of April, 1865. Booth was himself later shot dead by troops at a barn in northern Virginia, yet he wasn't the only conspirator to die in the fallout to the murder. Four people were hanged for their role in the assassination of America's 16th president, and one of them was a woman. Mary Surratt was a devout Catholic convert, an enslaver and a supporter of the Confederacy, who, following the death of her alcoholic husband in 1862, was thrust into the world of business. She managed the family farm and tavern in Maryland until, in the autumn of 1864, she moved to Washington with two of her children and set up a boarding house there. Mary's new address soon became a hive of activity. Confederate agents were frequent lodgers and visitors, among them Booth. Mary's son, John Surratt Jr., was a close friend of Booth, whose charisma won over both Mary and her daughter, Anne. In March 1865, on the eve of Lincoln's inauguration as president for a second term, Mary made a fateful comment that one of her boarders remembered. Something is going to happen to old Abe, which will prevent him from taking his seat. Mary, it seems, not only knew of the plans to assassinate Lincoln, but likely aided and abetted the conspirators by hiding and passing on firearms. Following the assassination, while Booth was still on the run, Mary was arrested along with seven male suspects. 
Mary was charged with the murder of Abraham Lincoln, attempting to kill the vice president and secretary of state, and assisting Booth in the assassination and his subsequent escape. Following a trial by a military tribunal, Mary and the seven male conspirators were found guilty. Four of the men received prison sentences, but controversially Mary was condemned to be hanged by the neck until she be dead. Despite desperate pleas for clemency, the sentence was carried out on the 7th of June, 1865. Mary was the first woman to be executed by the US federal government. Her story is a reminder that women's political engagement could take many forms, even at a time when women were officially excluded from the political sphere. Yet Mary Surratt's involvement in Lincoln's assassination did untold damage to the campaign for other women, particularly black Americans, to win political rights of their own. Today's Long Read was written by Rosalind Crone, Professor of History at The Open University and author of Violent Victorians and Illiterate Inmates, published by Manchester University Press and Oxford University Press, respectively. Thanks again to the Royal National Institute of Blind People for their help voicing this article, which first appeared in the January 2024 issue of BBC History magazine. <laughs>